It's March. It's March 30th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Mark Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. To kick off today's show, we'll hear about a couple of upcoming events. Andrea Fleeg joins us from the Hawaii Academy of Science to tell us about upcoming events there. Then Charlie Kinoshita from the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, or CTAR, will tell us about an upcoming student research symposium. And finally, with the uh, solar impulse poised to return to the skies, we're honored to have Anne Murata and Burl Burlingame from the Pacific Aviation Museum to talk about about both the future and the history of aviation in Hawaii. Of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation. If you're a plane geek, this is your show. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. Wait, wait. You said the plane geek or, or like a special geek? Just a plane geek? Plane and special geeks that like planes. Oh, okay, okay. I got it. I got it. Like an aircraft geek. Yes. Ah. Well, first up, we want to welcome Andrea Flagg. She's the adjunct professor of cell and molecular biology over at the John A. Byrne School of Medicine and the chair of the Hawaii Academy of Science. And she's got a couple of cool events to tell us about. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Well, thank you, Bert. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be back. I know. (laughs) I loved it last time, you know. It was was like several years ago. Yeah, it was. And it was about the Hawaii Academy of Science as well. And uh, it's actually uh, really exciting. We just had our major event, the Hawaii State and Engineering State and Engineering Fair, so that is really cool. Right, and and you know, actually, a friend of mine uh, tweeted to me uh, that the I guess ceremony, the award ceremony, was was uh, live streamed on YouTube, um, and it was it was yeah, that's I, cool. I, I caught it. Yeah, it was good. I think they, I when I was watching, it was about, like about a hundred viewers, so it's pretty cool. Jay Fidel usually also makes a, a really nice uh, uh, video of mm-hmm. every event and then, you know, uh, broadcast it. Any, anything notable you want to share with us uh, as far as awards? Well, um, unfortunately, I was in grand jury today. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> Didn't catch the, the latest uh, That's correct. awardees. Well, yeah. tell us a little bit about some of the upcoming events that you've got uh, planned. Well, we are all about, the, in the academy, we are all about um, STEM, mm-hmm. uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And uh, we have two very exciting events coming up. Uh, number one is um, we have the CEO of X Labs, uh, Dr. Eva Nair, coming in speaking to us, and she, uh, her uh, institution is nonprofit, and what they do is they have com- they have syn- uh, a synergy with the University of Göttingen in Germany, mm-hmm. and they have access to first class facilities in biology, chemistry, physics, and math, and they allow high school students fresh out of school, and they don't know exactly what they want to do, or even earlier when they're still in school, to go to these facilities, have an internship, and have very professional guidance. And the, the idea is that they are enticed to go into the sciences. Mm-hmm. So are these uh, geared for high school students that are currently in high school, or they've already graduated from high school? It's both. Both. Okay. So it's late-stage high school, and it's early-stage out-of-school. Mm-hmm. And so the the first presentation that she's going to be doing is kind of uh, an open presentation to students to participate? So anybody, students, teachers are invited. We have invited uh, our network uh, through the academy. Obviously, we have Mm -hmm. access to over 100 schools and teachers that are, you know, helping us. Um, And we thought that we combine her talk with a really exciting event where we show the actual facilities that we have at the Queens Medical Center, my own research laboratory, Mm -hmm. uh, and and give them a tour, you know, see, okay, first you hear the theory, and then what you can do with internships, going to Germany, uh, joining the summer for a research internship over there, and then actually see what a real life 
uh, biomedical research laboratory looks like. So what are some of the things that they would see at that facility? What are what some of the great tools and toys, perhaps, that you have to work with? Uh, probably the most important, uh, the core of the center is really to maintain the cell cultures that we have because mm. we're working with mammalian cells and where they need to survive. So we have tissue culture facilities, we have centrifuges, we have gel runnings. Uh, we actually have a high-throughput drug screening kinetic plate reader, and what that is is probably the state-of-the-art, probably the one time in the world at the moment uh, in our laboratory at the Queen's Medical Center uh, where we can actually do drug screening to identify new drugs for new medicines in the future. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, more associated with the work that you're doing at JABSOM as opposed to the Hawaii Academy of Science. Correct, correct. correct. So we're combining both. We're taking advantage of me being chair at the Hawaii Academy of Science Mm -hmm. uh, and working in STEM-related field and helping students to uh, excel in science as well as combining the research experience that we have in our lab. So for that particular event, what are the details that uh, people should be prepared for or look for? Okay. So the details, it will uh, occur uh, April 7th at 4 p.m. on the Queens Medical Center campus, University Tower, 8th floor. That's 1356 Lusitana Street. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's a a conference that is also associated with with this event. Exactly. Um, uh, We have, so we have uh, for two years now, I should say, that's a very long time, but that's how long it takes. Mm -hmm. For two years, we've been planning this international conference on advances and breakthroughs in calcium signaling. And the Journal of Physiology uh, in England, a very prestigious, very old journal, over 150 years old, has thought, why don't we bridge, help you bridge East and West scientists and have actually the conference that we organize every two years in Honolulu this time. Mm -hmm. And so we said, sure, we always wanted to do this. Little did we know about the amount of work, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) it is what it is. It's it's really exciting. Uh, We have three Nobel laureates as keynote speakers, all in the field of calcium signaling, in uh, neuroscience, uh, in the field of neuroscience, in the field of of, uh, biomedical molecules. And we have 16 international speakers the best in the field. Mm-hmm. And they're all really excited to come to Hawaii and to, to see what it is and, and get over the prejudice of, well, you can't do science in Hawaii. Excuse me? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we know calcium is an important element for the body, but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of calcium signaling, what is it that, what some are, are some of the examples of how the body might use calcium to signal different mm-hmm. kinds of activities? Absolutely. For example, uh, do you have an allergy? Uh, yeah. Okay, so every time... Like when the VOB maybe uh, starts to... Exactly. Irritate your eyes. eyes. Uh-huh. The eyes are irritated, your nose starts to run, and that's an allergy, that's an allergic reaction, and it's, it's caused by cells that are called uh, mast cells. And the whole process that these mast cells, they secrete a certain uh, a transmitter into this into our system, and that causes these allergic reactions, and that the underlying signal is changes in intracellular calcium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how many uh, people will be attending this? I mean, what will be the typical audience that you would have? We are very happy to report that we have 100 attendants wow. all over the globe. Um, about 50% are from the U.S. and from uh, we also have Korea, China, Japan, Australia, Chile. Uh, we have, of course, the U.S., Canada, Germany, France, uh, Great Britain. 
So mm-hmm. a very widespread uh, audience. Now, do you have a plan or a, a focus perhaps for the year or for future events in terms of outreach or, or bringing this community together? We would love to to do this, uh, uh, a repeat, make this a repeat event, particularly because now we know how to do it. Right. You have, the, <laughs> you have it under your belt. That's right. So with, uh, you know, with your work at the... Uh, uh, Academy of Science, as well as uh, as uh, with Jabsum. I mean, do you envision more of these sort of STEM activities for students to get more connected to what opportunities there might be in the sciences? I, I really uh, would love to do that. The Academy is on the brink of uh, forming another five-year uh, plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what one, Where do we want to go in the next five years? And I've always been pushing for uh, combining the sciences and education with entrepreneurship. Uh, the, the mission of the Academy right now is the focus on science and, and education, and that is really important because it forms the basis of entrepreneurship uh, and we, if without science, you don't have the other. So there, it goes together. So we'll see. Well, we've definitely been tracking some of the activities of the Academy all this time. I think that bringing in the entrepreneurship angle would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps we'll be able to reconnect with you as mm-hmm. that plan comes together. To oh, yeah, most, most, most definitely. I mean, we, we will definitely have to get you back. And, you know, after you have your five-year strategy all kind of laid out, we mm-hmm. want to have you maybe come on and uh, articulate that. I would love to. So where can people find more information on these events, uh, or at least the biomedical conference, for example, mm-hmm. where you can talk about calcium signaling? Okay. For the calcium signaling conference, please go to calcium-signaling.weebly.com. And for uh, Dr. Neher's presentation on uh, X-Labs in Göttingen, you can go to the hawaiiacademyofscience.org. Fantastic, and we'll put those links on our show notes at hawaiibitemarkscafe.org. Uh, That's right. Thanks, Andrea, for joining us. Thank you very much. And, of course, next up is Charlie Kinoshita, and he's the Associate Dean for Academic and Student Affairs over at CITAR, and he's here to tell us about the 28th Student Research Symposium. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you very much. This is the 28th year of the symposium, and this year we have 133 abstracts being presented, probably the largest student-featured um, symposium or conference in the state of Hawaii. When you talk about students, uh, how broad is that demographic? Uh, that demographic, well, uh, going up vertically, we have undergraduate students, master's degree students, as well as PhDs. They cover a very broad spectrum, uh, all from the College of Tropical Agriculture mm-hmm. and Human Resources, as well as the College of Engineering. Uh, when we first started this 28 years ago, I wasn't in in the college at that time, but uh, we had maybe about, uh, say, two dozen students um, featured in in the conference. Mm -hmm. Today, we have about 130, as many as 150, and they cover a very broad spectrum of different topics. Now, can you, you know, off the top of your head, can you (laughs) tell me what might be on exhibit as oh. one of the symposium uh, exhibits. Well, I'll give you a couple. Actually, okay, I prepared good. a list, and and this. Well, don't don't you know you don't have to no, do all. No, it'll, of them. it'll it'll probably <laughs> be of interest to a number of people. Certainly to Andrea, um, one of the topics is West Nile virus NS4B, and please correct me, Andrea, if I'm saying this incorrectly. Regulates the retention of NS5 and virus-induced replication organelles. Uh, and something that would be, in fact, very special and dear to the special and plain geeks is <laughs> another one called Design of Unmanned Aerial Treatment Systems for Invasive Species Management. So, ah. you know, we've got something for everyone. That's great. So that's a, that's a pretty wide uh, swath of, of topics. Now, now this is um, typically, yeah, I mean, it's an annual event, and 
do you have are students participating in this as a result of their let's say uh, graduation? Are they doing you know these these projects as part of their graduation? Maybe their undergrad or maybe their masters or what have you. Very often they're doing this because this is part of a course requirement, mm-hmm. but more often than not, they're doing this because they want to share uh, the research findings that they've collected, you know, arduously co- collected, mm-hmm. and uh, very often to get practice uh, for uh, presenting their findings at a broader venue. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about a symposium and, and an event, is it like a science fair? Is there a sort of expositions or is it presentations in seminar rooms? How do, what does it actually feel like to participate? Okay. The first day, which is next Friday, we have a poster uh, presentation. So mm-hmm. we'll have about probably around 75 students with their posters on display, and the audience will go through the halls and talk to the different students and ask them questions about their findings, et cetera. The second day is what we call our oral presentation session, and there they will present orally uh, their findings to a to an, a live audience. Mm-hmm. Now, this is being done jointly with the College of Engineering, correct? Right. Is this something that the College of Engineering has been involved in previously? Um, yes, for the f- last five years. And so uh, what is it that they bring kind of to the table? Uh, I think they we've collaborated with them for a number of years preceding this conference, and we felt that it made sense to uh, showcase some of the collaborative efforts that we have with them. Plus, they do some excellent design and research uh, projects on their own. Mm-hmm. So it's not just... Uh, um, students out of sitar. It's also College of Engineering students sort of collaborating. College of, yep. College of Engineering. What did I say? Yes. No, <laughs> you, you were right. Uh, yes. And um, you're a proud alumni. Yep. And No? Uh, <laughs> well, at another uh, school. Of another school. <laughs> I see, I see. In engineering. Yeah. Uh, and we do, they do their research projects on their own. Plus, they've collaborated with other um, uh, units on campus, including CTAR, but uh, with others that you might not imagine. For example, one of the uh, projects that an undergraduate in College of Engineering is presenting is the biomechanics of dance, turns, and jumps. Oh, wow, that's good. There's probably a lot of uh, interest on the part of, you know, like the Academy of Creative Media to, you know, capture Mm -hmm. that for uh, motion capture. Now, you know, we have you on the show today because uh, this is open to the public, right? I mean, this is something that normally, I mean, you know, uh, you, what was good was Sitar kind of reached out to us and told us that this symposium was was uh, um, coming up. And normally I would think, well, this is pretty much for the university community, but this is actually open for the community, uh, the community at large. This is open to the public. Uh, as you well know, though, you know, the university does have some challenges when it comes to parking. So I just <laughs> caution anyone that... Uh, uh, you know, that might be a challenge. Well, you now, know, okay. I'm glad you're able to join us here to share that. But one of the many topics that we frequently touch on on our show is certainly that you can do science, you can do research, but the uh, significant part of that equation is to be able to convey it and explain it to the community, to the layperson, to people to understand the importance of the work that you're doing. Now, uh, has this public exposure for this symposium been a thing before? Have you have you seen sort of light bulbs go off, perhaps, in people that participate or attend? Yeah, I certainly do. I I think uh, the students are all excited. Um, you you can't marvel, you know, help but marvel at at the amount of excitement they have in presenting the kind of research they're doing. They're very proud of what they're doing, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, being a person of my generation, all of these students are much smarter and have a lot more creativity than I ever had when I was their age. <laughs> this symposium does 
offer them the opportunity to present their findings at a professional type of venue that otherwise might be very difficult for them to uh, experience because of our you know, isolation from other states, et cetera. Now, you know, I know that the university is getting a lot more into connecting with the community and also bridging the gap with some of the business uh, you know, community as, as far as employers. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is a connection between some of the projects that uh, uh, are being presented and potential, let's say, opportunity, job opportunities that students might get in Hawaii as a result of the work that they've done? Yes. Um, in addition to performing research that's very practical in some cases. Uh, For example, there's one on the uh, broadening of genetic base of papaya via intergenic hybridization with wild relatives. We can imagine that this might be of significant value to the papaya growing community out there. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, how we engage some of the uh, professional community is we ask them to be judges at our at our symposium. Okay. Yeah, okay. So they get very engaged. They learn a lot about what the students are doing. And more than one student has been hired as a result of this. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this event is coming up next week. Again, what are the details and where can someone learn more? Okay. Uh, this is taking place next week, Friday and Saturday, in the Agricultural Science Building at uh, on the UH Manoa campus. Um, Please don't ask me what the URL is for yeah, this symposium, well, but I just Googled SITAR. Uh, Student Research Symposium, and it took me there. Yeah, I, I think I have it, so I'll pu- definitely put that up on the Thank show you. notes. So that's on the 8th and 9th next right. week. Yeah, great. So thanks, Charlie, for joining us. And, of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by historian Burl Burlingame from the Pacific Aviation Museum, Pearl Harbor, and Museum Marketing Director, Anne Murata. Now, how does the museum help to preserve Hawaii's rich aviation history? And, of course, we will talk about the Solar Impulse preparing to resume its historic around-the-world flight. We'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call, 941-3689, or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio, so you can also tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. For years, Waikiki has been changing. Now with a bidding war between a Chinese investor and Marriott over Starwood Hotels and a proposed 350-foot tower to replace King's Village, well, Waikiki's character could change even more. We'll talk about what that might mean for the community tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. 
Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today from the Pacific Aviation Museum at Pearl Harbor are historian Burl Burlingame and marketing director Ann Murata. Aside from being a historian, of course, you recognize Burl's name from his journalism days over at the Star Bulletin or even as an author of Advanced Forces Pearl Harbor. Of course. Now, Anne is a longtime friend of Bite Marks Cafe and us on social media across social media. We are going to ask what some of the lesser-known stories perhaps are told at the museum. What goes into restoring and preserving those historic planes? And, of course, we'd love your questions and comments, too, at 941-3689 here on Oahu. Or you can reach us toll-free 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey. Excellent. Well, you know, in terms of uh, when we said uh, plane geeks, you know, it's like anybody who's interested in planes and aviation and flying, Hawaii has been obviously a crossroads of the Pacific for many years. And, you know, what you folks do over at the Pacific Aviation Museum has really, uh, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like a hidden treasure of, of some really cool things. And, and tell us, I mean, I, I still want to know, how did you guys actually get started? I mean, this idea must have been uh, somebody's sort of wild idea, but it actually came together and really, you it, know. Built. It, was, it was a wild idea, and it was, about, it was one guy's idea, and then it was four guys' idea, and they got together, and they worked really, really hard for many years. Mm-hmm. And they opened um, in 2006. The anniversary is December 7th, the date of the bombings, when they actually opened on an an auspicious occasion, of course. So, so this th- is going to be your 10th year. This is our 10th anniversary. This year in December, December 3rd, we're having our anniversary gala, which we have every year. It's our big fundraiser. It's our very high-end fundraiser. And it will coincide with all of the events that are going on for the 75th, uh, Pearl Harbor 75th anniversary commemoration, which mm-hmm, the state mm-hmm. is doing statewide. I'm wondering, I mean, how, how does this museum come together? I mean, I imagine it might be that some people collect you know, classic cars or classic motorcycles. Is it? Did it start with somebody looking for historic and classic airplanes and starting to build a collection and it leads to a museum? It, it goes yeah. back even farther than you think. Uh, back in the 1960s, the legislature passed an Aviation Day proclamation and then proclaimed that there should be a museum. And they gave the job to Bishop Museum. And for about 10 years, Bishop Museum had a curator collecting stuff um, and including some airplanes that the state had seized. And then uh, they decided they weren't going to do it because the Bishop Museum isn't really a history museum. It's a culture museum. Mm -hmm. And they decided that was beyond their scope of collection. And then another uh, group of people uh, decided to put together a museum at the airport. And we inherited Bishop Museum stuff, and I was the curator at that museum at the airport for a long time. And at the same time, we couldn't put real airplanes at the museum except for very small ones. Right, right. And so uh, John Sterling, uh, one of our, our real founder at the Pacific Aviation Museum, was eyeing Ford Island at these unused hangars. And he and I would climb around these hangars back in the early 90s and go, we'd love to put some airplanes in here. It's historic. Mm-hmm. And the airport museum shut down the day after 9-11. And at that time, the... Ford Island Museum really went forward and uh, opened uh, 2006. Was that it? Wow. Well, you know, that actually, I, I didn't know that part of history. I, now that I think about it, I remember the, I guess, museum in the airport. But you're right. It would essentially be smaller planes in the terminal that you would walk past along with the giant carved head and the giant mural. And I would right. say, oh, look, there's an airplane. I had no idea that that was an independent operation to some extent. But if people can't access it freely, 
It's not, it's not that much of a museum. Yeah, and security is always a, a thing at the airport. And Duty Free, who really ran the airport in those days, wasn't real happy with a facility that you would go into for free and not spend money at. So um, it, it so, was an interesting situation. So, bro, the, uh, I, and this is great to have you on because uh, obviously you've been, you've been very passionate about the, you know, this, this uh, whole aviation history for, for many years. So you said that after 9-11, that basically shut it down just because of the security issues? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, this little book that I, that I brought, I talk about you know, the first 100 years of aviation history here in the islands. And one of the major events is the shutdown of uh, aviation here in the islands after 9-11. For the first time in memory, you could look up into a Hawaiian sky and not see an aircraft. It was eerily quiet. Mm-hmm. And certainly we had a very, I think, visceral reaction in the sense that we talk about our isolation, our our access to goods and services, let alone tourism for our economy. But when that that giant, you know, nozzle was shut off, it, it I think it woke a lot of people up. You know, and, and Ford Island is actually an ideal place for us. You know, there's that connection with the Pearl Harbor attack. But the airfield on Ford Island is actually the first professionally built airfield in the islands. And we're approaching the centennial of that only two years away. And so we have to start getting our heads around that. The centennial of professional aviation here in the islands. So you have, uh, you, man, you have your, and you have your work cut off for you because you have your 75th uh, sort of Pearl Harbor anniversary. You have the 10-year Pacific Aviation you know, anniversary, and then in two years you're going to have the 100th year anniversary of the, you know, the airfield. We're, we're all about history. It's all about history with us. It's like one big historical event after the other. But, yes, this is going to be a big year. The 75th is um, you can find any information you want on the 75th mm-hmm. by going on our website, PacificAviationMuseum.org. We have a tile ad right on our homepage for, our, for the 75th, which goes directly to their site, which gives you all the statewide activities that are being planned to date, mm-hmm. and they will be added to constantly. So just go to PacificAviationMuseum.org, click on the 75th icon, and go directly to the Pearl Harbor Anniversary.com site. What was that address again? Pacific, <laughs> PacificAviationMuseum.org. Well you guys well, are kind of a team. Right? So well, he, he's the smart one. I'm the, I'm the marketeer. You got the looks and he's got the brains. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you bringing the book. It's I'll Fly to Hawaii, A Century of Aviation. Now, you know, it's many people are perhaps airplane geeks or aviation geeks to some extent. Even kids just love airplanes. Sure, My yeah. daughter was an airplane uh, fanatic when she was very small. In fact, one of the earlier websites I had built back in 2000 was basically a page that was easily navigatable with just pictures of airplanes that I had taken down at the uh, airport, and she would just click through. So even though she could barely form a sentence, she could identify <laughs> different liveries and different airlines based on the coloring and everything. That's and great. So, but that's something that I think, you know, almost anybody near an airport could probably do. But what I like about your book and about what you've been able to uh, share with people about the history of aviation in Hawaii is that it is very distinct. It is very unique. It is not like any other large airport in the country because of our location. I mean, there are some milestones in all of flying that Hawaii plays a part in. Hawaii is about as far away as you can get from anywhere. And aviation totally changed the islands. And aviation changed the world. I mean... Think about what was happening a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. What was happening a thousand years ago, Ryan? Well, there were like well, there canoes. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a fact. You know, there were some canoes and. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, a thousand years from now, 
people will remember this as the age in which man first left the earth. Mm-hmm. So we're living in a really interesting time. And it's only been a century or so in which the world changed from two dimensions to three dimensions. And you could rise up over the landscape and look at the earth in a holistic way. Mm-hmm. So aviation not only changed transportation, it changed our philosophy of the world and how we live in it. Now, I would like to hear some of the, let's say, special stories that you might have of the planes that are actually in the the museum. Because, you know, I've been there a couple of times, and there are some very special planes there. But, bro, I want to hear it from you. I mean, what are some of, what are some of the stories that you love telling? Well, one of my favorites is the plane that's always overlooked at the museum. And it's not even an ultralight. It's a microlight that a guy put together. It, and you ha- can't weigh more than 135 pounds to fly it. And he used to break records in it. And he would fly from Oahu to Kauai in this airplane. Mm-hmm. And it would take four and a half hours. And he always took an inflatable uh, raft and a paddle with him just, just in case. case. <laughs> and this was a guy, and it basically is, was like a motorized hang glider. And he would soar over our mountains and look down on things that you know, people never get to see. And there are still places in Hawaii that are inaccessible today. And when aviation came here, uh, one of my favorite groups is the 11th photo section that was stationed at Wheeler Field. And they, they set up about 1920. And they immediately started photographing Hawaii from the air. And they saw things even ancient Hawaiians never saw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those photographs still exist today. And uh, you can find them on eBay. <laughs> so how do, how do some of the planes get selected that go into the museum? Luck of the draw sometimes. Uh, one thing to remember is we started out specifically as a World War II museum mm-hmm, right. and realized real quickly that we uh, needed to cover an entire range of aviation, uh, including in some cases civilian aviation, because we are the only Pacific-themed aviation museum in the world. And we are the only one that is on an airfield that was a battlefield site. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the four, airfield on Ford Island and the one at Wheeler and Bellows, these are the Lexington and Concord of, of airfield fighting. I mean, these are historic sites. And the landscape, what we call the cultural landscape in there, is basically the same today as it was in those days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's almost like going back in time. It is. Well, I mean, I mean I, again, like Bert, and actually through Bert and you, I've had an opportunity to bring my family to the museum a couple of times as well. And I would say that one of the things that was always perhaps an invisible barrier to me was that I almost thought that the Fort Island area was just basically inaccessible to me. Like I would just sort of say, well, maybe when they do that marathon run and we can run across the bridge, and that's the only time I can really think of people just sort of driving over to Fort Island. But that was a complete you know, misunderstanding of, of, of the island and the way that people can go there and see these well, we're having for the air show this year, which is June fourth and fifth. We moved it up from August because August is too hot. It's it's it was hot. a pretty. It was too hot <laughs> last year. Hot. Some yeah. of the planes couldn't fly. Some of the big uh. planes, and we've got bigger planes this year for the remote control air show. So this year, you're going to be again be able to drive on. Everybody, the gates will be lifted. You can drive on. But you've seen Ryan now that even if you can't drive on normally, which you, the visitor usually can't, there's a shuttle you jump on down at the Pearl Harbor Visitor Center and. Come on out to the Missouri to visit. Also, the Oklahoma or the yeah, the Oklahoma Memorial is out there, mm-hmm. and then you can come to our place. So there are actually three things that you can do out there that the visitor can do on Ford Island, which is the center of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you have okay, okay, you have basically um, the museum, and then you have this big hangar that 
also has a lot of planes in it as well. We call it all. We call both hangers the museum. Okay. okay. So, so we I call well, the first hangar the Disney hangar. That's right, the tricked right. that, out one. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. And then we have the battle, <laughs> the one that's still in battlefield condition, the one that's double the size, which has the bullet holes in the windows from the morning. Well, I'm glad you said tricked out because yeah, it is the one with the nice lights and yeah. the exhibits and the yeah. you know the guy standing next to the plane and all that kind and, of. And and when when we have you know part of our part of our mission is not only to educate young and old, about aviation in Hawaii and aviation in the Pacific and about the part that uh, Fort Island and Pearl Harbor played it, uh, during the war. But it's also to um, uh, preserve, and we're trying to preserve three hangars. Eventually there will be three hangars there that we have preserved from being mowed down because, mm-hmm. you know, n- nobody really wants them but a museum. So a museum really preserves history. So we've the second hangar has been preserved, but it's not tricked out the way it will be when we have finances because you must remember we're a nonprofit, right, so we're right. always looking for funds. We, we tell time by money. <laughs> if, yeah. for, if, for example, people ask us, how long will that take? We say, that will take $5 million. Yes. yes. <laughs> right, right. And if there's no money, that will take you know, that's, that's right. forever, right? I mean, it's not, never right. going to happen. And we refer to the entire site as the campus because yes. it reflects our educational mission. Well, our educational mission, it includes the tower. It includes the two hangars and the tower. And then there's a tower beyond, a uh, 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 hangar beyond hangar 79 that we will eventually have. So there mm-hmm. will be three and then as, Bert, as Burl says, the whole campus, the, the, I don't know how big that square footage is, but it's pretty big. big. It's big. Now, Burl, I like how you, you pointed out that although there is certainly a great deal of military history and military aviation that is preserved there because of, of course, Hawaii's role uh, in that sense, there is, you know, the civilian uh, aviation sort of milestones. I remember, uh, you know, just seeing the old Pan Am gear and the the bags and the, the uniforms and everything. That was certainly brought back memories and uh, certainly uh, – that you can perhaps that people can identify with uh, more easily, um, but I, I am curious about kind of these historic ties. I had a friend in high school; his obsession was Amelia Earhart, and he was he he moved here from Idaho, and he thought that he had you know come to such a great place where he could have this connection with her. And until I met him, I didn't even know that there was a great deal of a link between Amelia Earhart and Hawaii. One of my jobs at the museum is uh, I I create signage. Mm-hmm. And one of the themes of one of the ranges of signage is called You Are There. And we had a whole debate about whether it should be here or there, and we decided there you know, is a, is a destination. And the sign that stops people in their tracks every time is, Amelia Earhart crashed here. And they always stop and read the sign. Mm-hmm. And Amelia Earhart, on her first try to fly around the world, was taking off down the runway, and her tire blew, and the whole plane spun in, and went cartwheeling down the runway, throwing out sparks and chunks of metal and aviation gas and came to a stop. And uh, that was the end of her first try to go around the world. They fixed the plane, but the weather changed. She went around the world in the opposite direction and disappeared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we have a beautiful exhibit called Amelia Earhart in Hawaii. We have photos that nobody else has seen anywhere that Matson gave us. So we have a great exhibit on her out there. With Duke Hanamoku wearing a kimono at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Yeah. Well, when you talk about museums, one of their, their 
the things that they can enjoy or that's certainly important to them is adding to their collection. You know, we, we've obtained or we've been had a donation of this artifact or this aircraft. Um, and that's always been something interesting to me. Uh, before we get to kind of perhaps things that you might covet or that you would like to add to the museum, um, what were some of your more recent acquisitions as a museum that uh, you were especially excited about? One thing to keep in mind is that the air war over Vietnam is now more than 50 years ago. And that, by any measure, is a historic time period. And those, and actually, aviation artifacts, the law in Hawaii for historic artifacts was changed. I know because I helped write that, that <laughs> change to the law. But aviation artifacts have a special place in Hawaii preservation uh, history. And because they're so fragile and they're so rare. Mm-hmm. And airplanes are made out, you know, airplanes are basically, you know, air held together with rivets. And they're very fragile, and there's not that many of them, and they return to the earth like everything else, unless they're preserved. One of our uh, uh, prime exhibits is a B-17 Flying Fortress, probably the most famous airplane of World War II. Um, And it was given the name Swamp Ghost by the press, and that's not its historic name, but that's the name history has given it. And when we received this airplane, it sat in a swamp for 60 years in New Guinea, and, was, and mm-hmm. was pulled out of the swamp and was damaged as they pulled it out. But apparently the guys pulling it out were scared of the crocodiles and the cobras and, so reasonable. and the giant scorpions. <laughs> and they were also working up to their necks in water. Mm-hmm. So uh, they didn't pull it out all that well. And we received the airplane, and it was very fragile. And it is a one-of-a-kind aircraft. Now, at that point, people started asking, when are you going to restore the airplane? Now, that is a philosophical and a very tough decision to make. Because when you restore an airplane, you replace things. And if we replaced everything on that airplane, there'd be nothing left Mm -hmm. of the original. And it is the only flying fortress in the world that still bears the scars of battle. And that's the one in the big hangar, The big swamp goes back. And there's ghosts. I mean, (laughs) there's photos of it actually being pulled out of the swamp. Right. Right. But we do restore aircraft there as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, ones that are in better shape. But having the plane... And actually, when we built the supports for it, we tried to figure out what attitude to put it at, and we decided to put a level on the dirty water mark inside the airplane. So it sits today exactly the way she sat in the swamp, and you can walk up to it as if you were in the swamp itself. And eventually, there will be a large exhibit built around it. But Hangar 79, which is the really big hangar, uh, is a building in transition mm-hmm, at, mm-hmm. at this point. We, we sort of store things there. And it really needs a new roof. We have weather inside the building. Well, <laughs> well, you mentioned briefly restoration. I know that, in, I think in that hangar, there is a restoration shop to yes. where when you come to visit, there's actual work. It's not It's not like maybe we're dipping chocolates just because tourists are walking by. There's actual <laughs> work happening there to restore airplanes. But since you pointed out that not all airplanes should be restored, um, what is the charter, perhaps, of that group that is in there working to restore airplanes? They, they try to bring them back to uh, a historically accurate appearance, and it's also to stabilize and preserve the airplanes. And the, even the B-17 that we're not going to restore, we wash it down with distilled water every couple of months, and we got it undercover. So it won't get any worse. Are you fabricating parts? Because I would imagine it's kind of hard to go down to Checker and pick we up. We have some wonderful guys at the museum who can make almost anything. Mm-hmm. And if you call me up sometimes, half the time you can't hear me because there's someone outside my door banging on something. 
you know, I want to hear a little bit more about the maybe the uh, planes that you're interested in acquiring, or are there planes sort of in the backlog that people are ready to donate? Because that's what you want to fill your next hangar with. But before we go there, I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to, con- to continue our conversation with Bro Burlingame and Murata from the Pacific Aviation Museum, Pearl Harbor. Of course, we'd like to hear from you. You can call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. It's not exactly crowdsourcing, but sometimes fixing up national icons takes a little bit of extra cash. I'm sure there's some people who say that let the federal government do everything, and if the federal government doesn't have the money, it shouldn't be done, but that's just not my point of view. I'm Kai Rizdal, CEO and patriotic philanthropist David Rubenstein, next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, this is Ari Shapiro in Washington, D.C. And this is Kelly McEvers in Culver City, California. And people listening to the show might not know that in front of each of us, there is a red phone. Kind of like that phone that must be in the president's office, right? Except this is so that in the middle of the show, when news breaks, Kelly and I can talk about how we can give you the most relevant of the moment show anywhere. Are you sure it's only for when news breaks? Okay, sometimes it's also for gossip. (laughs) Join us every afternoon on All Things Considered. Weekdays at noon. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. And we are talking to, from the Pacific Aviation Museum, Pearl Harbor, historian Burl Burlingham and director of marketing, Anne Murata. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Right before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, all the cool planes that are in there. Burl, you mentioned the, the Vietnam era 50 years ago and... And I am curious if there are, let's say, a, a, a backlog or maybe there's a wish list of, of planes that you might be interested in We, in we have a top, a top ten list, uh-huh. and we'd love to acquire them. And they're all World War II airplanes, which are extremely rare and hard to get out here to the islands. And the planes that are the Vietnam era weren't originally in our mission. Mm. But we recognize that that is a historic era now. And as the planes became available, we acquired them. Mm-hmm. And... Five of our airplanes, for example, came from an Air Force museum in Georgia that was cutting back on their number of airplanes. And they, mm. they gave us a list of planes, and we made notes on which ones we'd like, and we asked for six, and we got five. So when you say they had to cut back, I mean, because as you mentioned, you measure time in, in money. I mean, what is it that uh, they had to cut back? And is it because the number of planes means more maintenance and more attention? Is it the amount of space that it takes? Yes, and when you have a large collection, it's uh, basically... Yeah, imagine you're leaving a lawnmower that's 100 feet wide out in your yard every day and you've got a dozen of them. That's a full-time job just keeping it from falling apart. Mm -hmm. And some of these planes are just massive and they weigh a lot. And often it costs more to ship them than to buy the airplane. And you're not flying them to the museum, obviously. Right. Uh, The Navy uh, does not do flight operations on Fort Island. And uh, at times they won't even allow a helicopter to land there. But, you know, you can land anywhere in the United States. It's takeoff you need FAA clearance for. Mm-hmm. So basic, and sometimes the Navy will allow it and sometimes they won't. It's, it's, uh, int- we're working on a active duty military installation in a time of war. Mm-hmm. And so there are security issues. Mm-hmm. Now, um, um, <clears throat> well, I want to go to our, our caller and 
but we are talking to uh, Burl Berlingame, historian over at the Pacific Aviation Museum and Anne Murata, the marketing manager there. And we're getting uh, sort of firsthand all the cool stories that are happening over at the uh, Pacific Aviation Museum. If you want to give us a call, 941-3689 from Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Stan from McCulley to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha, guys. Hey, uh, I want to thank Ryan for uh, uh, inviting me to come and call in. I posted something on his Facebook post. A oh, little bit oh earlier, good. I know. It works. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, just to give you a little background, and first of all, I wanted to thank the guys at the Pacific Aviation Museum for really trying to keep up a history of aviation here in Hawaii. For myself, my uh, mom and my dad were brought over uh uh, Northwest Airlines when they were working for them and my father eventually stayed at Aloha Airlines and uh, was their vice president of maintenance eventually so aviation in my family is quite seeped if you know mm-hmm. what I mean sure. and so I wanted to just kind of call in and just say thank you very much for keeping not only the military aviation alive which is quite extensive but also the civilian aviation alive because uh, you know sometimes that gets kind of uh um, taken advantage of, I guess, a little bit because of the fact that, you know, the only way to get from here to there on the mainland is by flying or, you know, pretty much that's the only way. So just keeping that history alive is really important, too. So I really appreciate it, and I thank you. Well, that was nice of you, Stan. We thank appreciate you, the Stan. kudos. <laughs> yeah, of course. I think more people should appreciate what you guys are, have have uh, established out there. I mean, it's a great, uh, great place to visit. We have a lot of passion, don't we, Burl? We do, and we're... We're a very young museum in very old buildings. And a lot of the effort goes into basically keeping the roof from falling down and, uh, and making the airplanes look nice. And uh, we have 500, 600 people a day walking through the place. That's a lot of traffic for an aviation museum. We're up, yeah. to, we're up to eight, nine, a thousand now. Wow. We're, we're in peak Spring season. Break. We're in peak season. Now, and you mentioned that uh, you know the, the tower is part of the museum. And I remember going and visiting when it was sort of in restoration mode. It's and still in restoration Oh, it is? Mode. I thought it was finished. It just looks good. <laughs> yeah, I be- It does look I good. I begged them not to paint it before we got all the money to finish it because uh-huh. people quit giving to it. But we're back in restoration now. We're on the inside, doing the inside of the operations building, the wiring, the windows, and then we're going up and do the elevator, which will then take visitors to the top so they can see Fort all of Pearl Harbor, which will be really nice when mm-hmm. it's finished. And there will be a... I think Burl has some plans for for the museum-type area at the bottom of the right. tower. All the wiring in that building is World War II vintage. There's not a wire nut anywhere in the building. <laughs> and and so, the, basically, the we need office space. We don't really have office space in the museum. We also don't you have, have a trailer, I, I recall. We yeah. have lots of trailers. <laughs> and got a new trailer, and I'm really jealous. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great trailer. But the uh, we also uh, are creating a library, uh, a major aviation library. Uh, we have lots of books in our collection. And we're negotiating with the other Pacific uh, Historic Park sites, like the Arizona Memorial mm-hmm. and the Bofin Museum. We may combine all our libraries into one place, so people will have a one-stop shop when they want to do research. And we also will create the archives in that building. And like Ann said, getting the elevator to work to go to the top of the tower gives you an unbelievable view of mm. Pearl Harbor. 
Just don't point your camera towards the submarine pens. Right. Yeah. Now, Stan mentioned Aloha Airlines, and, you know, certainly that's recent history, but even from the things that I've seen posted, uh, Nick Augusta and everything, there's a great deal of nostalgia for that piece of Hawaii Wouldn't it be history. great to do an Aloha exhibit? We have the Pan Am exhibit, of course, and the Pan Am people love that. But wouldn't it be nice to do I an think Aloha it would be great. exhibit? Because yeah. that's so important to us Sure, here. we all grew up with Aloha yeah. Airlines. Yeah. And when you talk about planes we covet, uh, Hawaiian has the old has their original airplane flying here, and they take it up for spins all the time. Mm-hmm. A 1927 Balanca, and when they retire that airplane, really, it should come to us. Ah, you hope. I hope. Uh, are you uh, are you lobbying for that? <laughs> put the word. Put the word out. Okay. We, we will. Now, you had mentioned these uh, planes that you had gotten from um, this other museum, and you got five out of the six. Were there any special connections between the five that you got to Hawaii? Um. There was an F-100 and a uh, – there's still one uh, waiting on the docks in California, mm-hmm. and it is an F-105 Thunder Chief, and it is a massive bruiser of an airplane. And there are planes that people won't cross the street to look at, and this is one people will drive miles to take a look at. I mean, the F-105 is an amazing aircraft, and as soon as we get it here, it's going to eat up a lot of the space in the hangar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are these uh, special on your list because of the just uh, the attractability? I mean, the attraction of it. Well, we we when things become available, then we put out feelers, and uh, sometimes things become available, and we will change our mind about what we need depending on what's available. Mm-hmm. But there are a, a dozen different aircraft types that are high on our list, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one of them is coming. Number one on my list was a PBY Catalina. And one of those, uh, thanks to John Sterling, is coming out here later this year. And we don't know if it's staying or not, but it's here for the uh, 75th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. Oh. And, and is, that, is, that, is, um, is there a special reason why it's high on your list? I mean, what, that, what? that is the plane that was in those hangars on December 7th. Okay. I oh. okay. And I'm, I had to, of course, look up a F-105 Thunder Chief. It is a pretty impressive uh, bomber. And uh, I can see why people might cross the street to look at that. Yeah, and it stands, the landing gear is taller than we are. Hmm. It's it's a big, big plane. <laughs> now, and there are a lot of places around the museum, around the hangars that are historic in and of themselves. I mean, even uh, the last time I went out with Nick, he was showing me all the strife marks, you know, of where planes, I mean, where, where bullets were actually ricocheting off the ground. Yeah, and that's pretty exciting, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, you're, you're, you're on hallowed ground out there. That mm-hmm. is like the Gettysburg of the Pacific. There's no place else like that. That was... When you walk inside Hangar 79 and turn and look at the windows, the blue-leaded windows with the panes missing and the bullet holes, it's pretty chicken skin. Mm -hmm. And that's all over the tarmacs around us. Burl knows exactly where they are. Um, A lot of people don't get to see that. You probably did because you were on probably with one of your your bite mark squad. We had one of our aviation experts, uh, you know, personally showing you. Yeah, and yeah, as I remember, you guys got to lunch under the tower by the tower too. So you got (laughs) special stuff, but but we do like for people to uh, experience some things like that because then it makes them it brings home the attack. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the attack on Pearl Harbor. The bombs first fell there. That's where the attack first started. A couple of months ago, one of our facilities person was mowing the grass next to the tower, and he found a a squashed 7.7 bullet from a Japanese airplane embedded still in the grass. Mm -hmm. I mean, the history history still comes to the Mm -hmm. surface. By the way, there's someone on eBay selling Ford Island dirt. 
<laughs> and I wish I'd thought of that. Well, next time I go there, maybe I'll get some concrete or something. No, I'm just kidding. Well, we've talked a lot about the history of aviation, and certainly it's significant for Hawaii's development as well. But Hawaii uh, is also now playing a part in conversations about the future of aviation. And I'm talking specifically about the solar impulse, which had to spend a little more time in Hawaii than they initially planned. But they are now doing training flights. You can track it on the Internet, see them spiraling mm-hmm, south of mm-hmm. Honolulu, and they're preparing to continue that. Uh, around the world trip. Um, and so, Burl, I was wondering, I mean, uh, as much as history is exciting, is something like the Solar Impulse mission attractive and, and compelling to you as well? I never want people to get tired of things like this. I mean, the Solar Impulse is one of those extraordinary aircraft. And I actually had a revelation about the two Solar Impulses. There's, this is the second one mm-hmm. the other day. And it has to do with power and weight and thrust and those ratios The solar impulses are the first aircraft in history to land weighing exactly the same as they took off Hmm. because the energy has come from the sun and they're not consuming anything Mm -hmm. to get their power to power the airplane. And that means it's a benign influence in the environment. It doesn't soak soak up resources and pollute the environment. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. if they're built correctly, they could stay in the air indefinitely. Well, yeah, I mean, they are actually uh, doing some test runs right now, and they are planning to, I think, uh, continue their the next leg sometime in mid-April. Now, you know, yeah, this is a very historic thing. I mean, they're running completely on clean energy, on solar energy. Now, but they, you know, the, there's a reason why they had to stay in Hawaii over the course of the winter. And, bro, I mean, you were kind of pretty much uh, uh, on top of that story. I mean, what what, what happened? The days got shorter. Well, the days got shorter, but they did have some, um, they, some battery prompts, right? Well, they, they had meant actually to fly all the way across the Pacific. Mm-hmm, right. And um, the, the pilot actually got so excited about flying over Hawaii, he stayed up in the air an extra couple of hours just because he enjoyed being in it. And he'd been flying for five days. Mm-hmm. It was also the flight from Japan to Hawaii was not just the longest flight for a solar pilot ever. It was the longest solo flight by anyone ever in history. And the guy was up in the air for five days, taking taking twenty minute laps and doing yoga, mm-hmm. and got here. And the thing is, is they uh, put insulation on their batteries when they took off from Japan because they were having cooling issues. But they climbed too rapidly, and the batteries overheated slightly. But they couldn't cool them down because they were over insulated. And by the time they got to Hawaii, they'd basically messed up their batteries. And these aren't diehards you can get from Sears. you right. you, you got to <laughs> order them from uh, Switzerland. And uh, so they had to fix it. And by the time the plane was fixable, it it you know was too late in the year. There weren't enough hours in the day. And the other thing is that the technology for this has gotten to the point where something like this was feasible. It's not just solar power, which has only been around in electrical form for about 20, 25 years. You know, on, on the consumer sure, level, sure. NASA's at it way longer. <laughs> but the the carbon fiber technology and things like that, you know, the wingspan on solar impulse is more than 200 feet. But the whole plane weighs about the same as a large van. And I mean, when it lands, they keep the wingtips from touching the ground by guys on bicycles. Yep, right, right. I mean, it, 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 the lightness uh, of the thing and the strength of it is amazing. Well, we had uh, Andre Borschberg on the show after they had uh, landed here. And when we had him on the show, he had actually made the announcement that they were going to 
suspend their continuation of their traveling around the world. So, you know, it, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that um, I, I think that, you know, they're kind of anxious to continue on. I mean, and they are sure. actually today kind of in an operational mode because they're going to be doing some test flights uh, tomorrow. So, you know, I mean, uh, I'm hoping that maybe we could get them on, but I think it's going to get tight in terms of, you know, when they have to actually If there's leave. a window that opens up, they just might go. They, ha- they do have mm-hmm. a public day coming up this weekend as well. So you have an opportunity if you can perhaps still get tickets to check that out. Now, Burl, you mentioned the thrust and the, the mechanics of it, and you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. This plane didn't burn any fuel while it was in flight, so it didn't add or remove anything from the environment. But it, you said it's also delicate and light because we are at that point where materials technology and battery technology and solar technology make it possible. This is such an extreme demonstration. How far in the future would it be that we could perhaps have uh, more consumer, uh, commercial kind of uh, aviation working with uh, renewable energy? Well, getting power is not a problem. Never has been. It's storing it and being able to reuse it later. And battery technology has always been the the roadblock. Mm -hmm. But these new carbon batteries that are coming on where they can actually shape the battery to fit a compartment or make the whole car shell uh, into a battery. Hmm. Um, And they did it by, I think, you know, burning carbon on top of a a DVD or something (laughs) and creating, you know, and it's something that also charges up in seconds instead of hours. Right. And it, that stuff is going to be commercial in the next three, four, five years. And Battery technology, it, it's – I wouldn't want to be a guy with a lot of stock in old battery technology <laughs> right now, but it's hard to tell where the new battery technology is coming from. But it's something uh, that the an entrepreneur you know, should watch every day. Now, bro, you've got a couple of things coming up uh, in terms of uh, uh, writing. I know you did a Solar Impulse uh, article that might be coming out in a, a Swiss website. Uh, Swissinfo.ch. Okay, and then uh, that's not going to come out until they actually launch. But you have a, uh, this new book – Ah. I'll fly to Hawaii. I mean, this is out already on the bookshelf. It is. You can get it at the museum. You can get it at places like Bookends in Kailua. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Then, now, Anne, you mentioned uh, that you've moved the date for your great event. So tell us again about that. About the biggest little air show in Hawaii? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. This is our ninth year. We are uh, expanding the size of the remote control planes this year. They're going to be one-fourth scale instead of one-fifth, so they're going to be even bigger. (laughs) It's a new group coming in from the mainland, so we'll have um, all morning we will have uh, open cockpits in that big hangar, Hangar 79, Mm -hmm. education tables, education events for the children, make-and-take aviation stuff. Our education program is quite quite robust out there, so in the morning you'll be able to get a lot of that um, hands-on stuff for the keikis. And this will be June this June, year. June 4th and 5th. And which, then we which start... Which is the anniversary of the, of the Midway battle. Right. Oh. We're also commemorating Midway with this air show. This air show always commemorates something, and this will be the Midway commemoration, the Battle of Midway. I know you brought it up before the break, but one more time, where can people go to find more information about everything we've discussed today? PacificAviationMuseum.org. Fantastic. Very good. Well, Burl Burlingame is a historian and curator. And, of course, Anne Murata is the marketing director over at the Pacific Aviation Museum at Pearl Harbor. We want to thank you both for joining us today. This has been fun. Thank you, guys. Aloha. Aloha. Fantastic. <laughs> and mahalo for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we kick off Challenge 2016, our semi-annual pledge drive. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. 
And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's Martin Villinger and a song that he composed for Solar Impulse called Music Impulse. Nice. We'll see you next week on another edition of, actually, a <laughs> we kick off Challenge 2016. Challenge 2016. <laughs>